Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following share from Patrick was recorded on March 16th, 2023. Thank you all. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I just sent out the link to some friends. I actually thought this was at seven o'clock. So, <laughs> um, but this is, this is how recovery works. Uh, my community is always active and my recovery is working all day long. So jumping in. Um, well, I'll, I'll kind of follow the format of the meeting of talking about my childhood, how I found ACA, uh, what it's brought me, what it's been like. Um, and then I, I might kind of center around this theme of talk, trust, feel um, as a process and as an invitation. Um, so yes, my name is Patrick. Uh, I'm an ACA. Um, I started ACA in 2016, um, and my story started much earlier. I grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, father was an addict. Uh, grandparents were addicts, um, and there's addiction scattered throughout the family tree, which I learned uh, in more detail in step one of the ACA process when you're um, asked to look through your family tree and identify what you see. Uh, that was so helpful to put language to the generations and what the generations carried. Um, I was also the oldest sibling of two. I have a younger sister. Uh, my parents stayed together, though there was a lot of a lot of conflict, um, especially in the early years. And um, and I, as the oldest sibling, I kind of I took a lot of that on. Um, so I, I see my both my father's alcoholism and my um, my parents' marriage in general going through these different stages. Um, in the early years, uh, my parents were younger, for one. Uh, they had more energy. And so there was a lot more fighting, uh, a lot more conflict, um, a lot more storming out of the building. Uh, my dad's alcoholism seemed to be a lot more binge and purge, uh, trying trying to stop and then failing and then having these kind of uh, drunken walkouts. Um, and, you know, that that for me, I, that's when I was the smallest. Um, and some of my earliest memories are uh, that that conflict, that the, the yelling um, and the fear and the terror and uh and the desire to to want it to stop um actually it, one of my literal earliest memories is my mother carrying me up the stairs um in our condo and i'm um rubbing her back with this intention to comfort her um that's one of my earliest just snapshot memories and um what that tells me is that already as a very young person i was aware that uh my parents needed help and i i wanted to help them um now i know 
you know, children interpret environments as being their part and um, and under their control, their responsibility. Uh, it's kind of the idea of if I can believe that it's my fault, then that gives me a false a false sense of control. Because if it's my fault, there means there's something I can do. Um, so early on, I my earliest memories were just wanting to save the family, wanting to rescue the family, wanting mom and dad to be well, um, wanting mom and dad to be happy, uh, wanting mom to feel safe. My, my mother would come to me for comfort and support. She would disclose with me um, things she was scared about with my father. Uh, and then I also desperately wanted my father's approval. And, um, and so that was, that was just a confusing place to start learning about who I was in the world. Uh, so I always say that some of my original uh, false identities or, or ways of understanding myself were he who makes her happy, because I thought that that's who I was in, in relationship to my mother, and he who gets him to like me. Those were some of my my first two self-concepts was I'm I'm the one that's supposed to make mom happy and I'm the one that's supposed to get dad to like me so that he'll stay and the family will stay together and it won't fall apart. And um, those left indelible marks. Um, even, even at this point in my recovery, I'm still finding new ways that that comes up. Um, <clears throat> for instance, I'll, I'll give this anecdote and then I'll kind of jump back into the timeline. But for instance, this, this past year, I was choosing between grad schools and choosing which grad school to go to felt like life or death. I, I spent, you know, nine months preparing applications and trying to get into programs and loved the interview process, loved uh, gathering information and meeting people and uh, exploring. But then I got multiple offers and two weeks to decide where to go. And I had a full on panic. It, it was it. I felt as if it were life or death. And what I what I learned, you know, I, I leaned on my recovery program and my recovery support network to sort out what was going on. And one of the things was that making decisions for me always felt like life or death. Even when I was a small child, I thought that if I if I didn't make the, the decision just right, the family would fall apart. My parents' marriage would fall apart. Um, even even irrational stuff. Uh, the finances would fall apart. As as a kid, I have I have no impact on the finances. But there was these irrational beliefs that everything I did and everything I choose will have ripple effects on the family. And it's I'm responsible. I'm the one responsible for holding this family together. Um, the Red Book talks about roles, and I would call my main role the hero child. I, I truly believed that my behavior, the things I said, what I did or didn't do, were gonna either hold the family together or uh, make it fall apart. Um, so jumping back into my timeline, this this kind of led to a self sabotage cycle. In in once I started getting 17, 18, 19, um, by that point I was so exhausted um, and tired of kind of bearing the family image and trying to hold up the image of the family that I kind of grew this subversive self-saboteur that would um, sabotage my relationships, sabotage my endeavors, and prevent me from trying the things I wanted to try. Uh, I also had the inner critic. You know, the, the inner critic is something I learned early on, like I said earlier, of 
that it's all my fault. I, I had to believe that it's all my fault. And my inner critic reinforced that uh, by scrutinizing everything I did and constantly uh, criticizing me and making me think that it was my fault. Because if it's my fault, there's something I can do. Um, I didn't have the concept of powerlessness or, or the idea that, that certain things were my responsibility and certain things weren't. Um, so all I'll say without going into to too much detail, because um, I can always go back and add more of my history. But what happened was I brought that relational model of um, feeling that I was disapproved of by uh, men, by authority figures, by adults, and feeling that I was responsible for the well-being of um, of women and of relationships. I, I brought kind of those models into my adulthood. I, I replicated those in my adult relationships, uh, starting very early. I mean, starting then, but but as I as I got resources um, to to start my own life in college, getting jobs, this sort of thing, I replicated those relationships. Um, I sought out places where. I wasn't going to be approved of, and I, and I could try to get approved of. I could try to get that carrot of approval. Um, I sought out places where it seemed like people needed help. And if I could just help them enough, then I'd be valuable. Then I'd be free. Then I'd be safe. Uh, so I, I replicated those narratives and those scripts uh, in my adult life, which had like a cyclical process. Uh, that was very painful, but I wasn't talking about any of that pain. And that, that brings me to kind of my theme of the talk today of uh, talk, trust, and feel. Growing up, I didn't want to rock the boat and I, I didn't want to bring things up that might rock the boat. So I learned to not, tr not talk, not trust, and not feel. And so as I was going through that cyclical pain cycle, None of that pain was being offloaded, discussed, felt, acknowledged. Um, I just had to find new ways to uh, create the chase, new, new ways, new fantasies that if I just do this, then I'll be free. If I just do this, then I'll be valuable. If I just get their approval, if I just get this job, if I just get her to like me, if I just get this or that, then I'll be valuable. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be free. And um, and that led to eventually uh, a self-sabotage cycle that landed me back in my parents' house. Um, I, I, you know, somewhere in my story, I, I got sober. Um, I got off of um, alcohol and drugs and kind of out of the party scene. And I thought that that was going to uh, be my salvation, so to speak. Um, and then I, I went, I had moved out of California for that time. I moved back into California with this idea that, okay, now things are going to go well. And then obviously without an, addressing my ACA issues, I repeated the, the, um, relationship cycles, uh, as a sober person and that bottom, um, that bottom brought me to a place I'd never been before. And I didn't have. I didn't have, you know, my substances to run to, to numb out. I didn't have the party scene to go to and just disappear. Um, 
So I had sabotaged some relationships. I was back in my parents' household and I had this blow up argument with my dad. And at this point, I'm still in denial about the family system. I'm still in denial about alcoholism. I'm still in denial about family dysfunction. Um, all that stuff is still suppressed. And I had this massive blow up argument with my dad out of nowhere. And that was like very uncharacteristic of my hero child, right? Like the hero child is about keeping everything nice and safe and tucked away and making sure dad and mom are getting along and all this. So for me to have this eruption was very surprising. Um, and what that led to was a season of couch surfing because I didn't want to stay at my parents' house. So I was couch surfing around Santa Barbara and someone was coming through town who was studying recovery systems. They weren't even, um, they weren't a practicing recovery member at the time. I think they since are now. But um, they were just they were in this thing, this program studying recovery fellowships. And in a 10 minute conversation, he brought up ACA. And so I got the book and um, was just identifying deeply with the literature. Um, it probably took me another three months to start to go to meetings and meetings were. Were scary. I was intimidated. I didn't want to talk about my family. And yet being in the room brought me a sense of um, comfort and identification that I hadn't had before. And it was, it was giving me language for things that made a lot of sense, but I had never talked about before. I, I didn't know that, that I had permission to talk about them and, and I didn't know the words to talk about them. Um, so I kept coming back to meetings and, and I would, for me, I like, as the hero child, uh, false identity, self-sufficiency was my only way. Um, I was not going to trust and I was not going to feel, and I was not going to invite anyone else into my story or, or let them help me. So I would pop into meetings and I would read the literature and, um, and then I'd, I'd kind of take these hiatuses. Where, where I'd take off from recovery for a couple of weeks to a month and be like, oh, that was great. I got some great information. Um, I'm going to go do some self-application. I'm good now. I got this. Um, and uh, I did that for probably six months. <laughs> and every time I would leave, you know, I, I would see that things weren't really changing in my life and I'd get into another hard spot. And then I'd come back into the rooms and I'd always find that same sense of identification, sense of comfort sense of welcoming and and a place where I could actually talk about this stuff um, a safe place where I could talk about it an anonymous place where I could talk about it a place where uh, people didn't even know my family and if they did I I was using I, I wouldn't always use their names um, and the consensus you know as as is with recovery fellowships was that what happens here stays here um, and so I finally had this safe place to talk about things. Um, however, I still wasn't going to work on any work on any of this stuff with someone one on one. That that was out of the question. Uh, I now I was like open to going to meetings, to talk about this stuff in the group. Um, but I definitely wasn't going to work the steps or or talk with someone on the phone or. No, I, who has time for that? I'm not going to do that. Um, and that that was my attitude. And that lasted for longer. Um, and I had people inviting me, you know, hey, 
feel free to call me anytime. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. Like not, it, it wasn't even, um, it wasn't even something that I had questions about. I knew I could call these people and, and I was, I was still stubborn and refusing. Um, and I, I have compassion for myself looking, looking back on that time. For some reason I needed that. I, I don't suggest it. It's not my recommendation. Um, but I, I had a long season of refusing outreach phone calls, refusing to do the steps and just wanting the revelation, um, the information. Looking back, I see that that was like a version of a safe incubator. Even just coming to meetings, even just being around the message um, was wearing off on me. And there were changes happening inside. And for some reason, I wasn't ready until I was ready. Uh, eventually, I, I, was, I was really low energy because I was getting, um, I was getting all this information about ACA, about my life history, about my family history. I was getting all this information, but I wasn't doing any of the emotional processing. I wasn't doing any of the grieving with other people. Um, and so my energy was low because my grief was increasing, but I didn't have a practice of offloading it or interacting it. So I got to this point, I was working construction at the time and I could barely stay awake through the day. I was so exhausted. Um, and I, so I ended up taking two weeks off of work uh, just based on energy. And I went to ACA meetings every day. And on, on the far side of going to ACA meetings every day for two weeks, I mean, it's not long, um, but just that, that isolated time of like, okay, all I'm doing for this two weeks is recovery because I can barely stay awake. On the far side of that, I ended up staying on for fellowship more. Uh, well, this was in person. So I ended up hanging around for fellowship more, going to lunch with some recovery members. Um, and starting my phone call outreach practice, uh, starting with one guy uh, that I would talk to, you know, once a week or so. Um, I'm really thankful for that. Once I, I started inviting people into my life um, or accepting invitations to, to do outreach with people, uh, things started to change more rapidly. I think I think that's an important part just of life that I didn't see that yes there's information there's there's revelation there's figuring out new things but doing it out of isolation and with others uh was something I just didn't know was an option I I hadn't lived that way so that that was a huge shift in my recovery um as I was starting to do outreach calls I thought I had to have like a nice packaged um, message or like a thesis statement for what I I'd be calling people and say, hey, I'm struggling with this and this is what I'm going to do about it. And uh, all right, thanks. Good talking with you. Bye. <laughs> and um, and then one day, one someone I was doing outreach with invited me. He was like, you know, you can just call me when you're struggling. And just tell me what's going on. You, you don't need to have a plan. You don't need to have like a, a overarching message. Just just let me know uh, what hurts. You could even say, hey, I'm, I'm just struggling today and I don't even know why. I don't even have words for it. I just wanted to call someone. He's like, you don't need to have any message for me. Um, and, and then he added on to it by saying, you know what? In fact, it really helps me when you call. When you call me for outreach, it really helps me. When I when I hear what you're going through 
and and the things that you're processing that really helps me in my recovery because it helps me remember what I'm going through and, and the stuff that I'm processing. And so those were those were huge paradigm shifts for me that there could be mutual benefit from me reaching out for support that it, that it actually adds to the unity of the fellowship for me to get help. Um, that was a big paradigm shift. So I started practicing that. And at the same time, I started meeting up with the guy one-on-one -on -one, and we were going through the steps together. And I think the combination of that was, was a really mm, dynamic time. It felt like I was, I was moving really quickly. <laughs> um, it's funny because prior to recovery, I was always changing jobs and and sabotaging relationships and leaving relationships and always trying to change the externals you know like i just i just need to be in a different relationship or i i need new friends or i need a new job or i need a different apartment or i need to go to a new city i was always trying to change the external stuff and once i started working the steps with a fellow and doing um daily or weekly outreach calls eventually i got to daily but it started weekly but including those things in my life i found that i could stay at a job um, I, I felt like I could leave if I wanted to, uh, but I didn't have to. I, di I didn't have these like salvation fantasies, like I'll be okay if I just do this, um, because I knew that I was now leaning on a source of support that I never had before. And there was a lot moving internally. I was, I was starting to feel things and talk about my emotions. Uh, I was starting to talk about my past and break the don't talk, don't trust, don't feel rule. So a lot was moving on the inside. Um, yeah, that was really important. I think, um, one of the other things in terms of talking, trusting and feeling I wanted to discuss was that, uh, my recovery keeps going and, uh, my life seems to flow better. And I seem to just enjoy life more when I'm in the practice of, uh, being open and talking with others. I think in the beginning, it it was like this revitalization process of reconnecting with myself. And today, uh, it's both about maintenance, uh, but also just letting letting my life flow more. I find that even now, if I'm not doing outreach calls, if I'm not going to meetings, if I'm not just participating in my recovery process, I'll start to go back into my old strategies of trying to control the external world and manipulate the things outside of myself in order to feel safe and free versus when I'm talking with my fellows, there's kind of this thing that happens inside where um, I can operate within the same circumstances and have some sense of self, have some sense of safety and freedom. Uh, so yeah, I guess I kind of think of that as, as my 10th step these days of when I'm feeling especially stressed, or I notice myself trying to control things outside of myself a lot, that's an indicator that uh, that I, I need to participate, or I'm invited to participate, you know, and, um, and today I try to give myself that choice. Uh, I'll, I'll ask myself, you know, you know, we can keep working on this thing you're working on right now, or we can take a 10 minute break. And, and we can co call so-and-so and do a little recovery check-in. And nine times out of 10, I'll, I'll make that choice to, to take a break and make a call. And my, my day seems to flow better after. 
even for example, this call tonight, thinking that it was at seven, but actually it's at six. The the reason that that was an easy yes for me is because I know that if I'm participating in in my recovery flow, then everything else is going to flow better as well. Um, if I'm prioritizing participating in this program, however I can, uh, then my life seems to flow better. I seem to accept myself more. And uh, self-acceptance seems to be really helpful for the rest of my activities. Um, so, yeah, it's important that I prioritize that. Um, I want to talk about loving parenting. And I want to talk about dating. Because those are fun um, topics. Uh, I have six minutes and five. So, okay. Um, I was I'll just kidding. Your gentle warning. Thank you. Um, loving parenting. Uh, the loving parent guidebook is really good. Um, chapter eight of the big red book is also really good about talking about loving parenting. Uh, one way, one like in for me with loving parenting um, was just the concept of gentleness, just being a little more gentle and a little more kind with myself. I love that line in the solution that we reparent ourselves with gentleness, humor, love, and respect. Uh, that's definitely a daily practice for me and kind of acts as guidelines. If, if I'm not treating myself respectfully, lovingly, if I'm if not allowing myself to find humor in the little things of life, uh, those are indicators that I'm, I have permission to redirect. Uh, especially in the beginning, my inner critic was invisible. And so that was one reason it was important for me to break the don't talk rule and start talking was because that really helped me get eyes on my critical parent and find out what I was telling myself about myself. Uh, I, I would begin to call people uh, when I was feeling extra, extra stressed. And uh, my sponsor at the time would ask, um, well, what are you telling yourself about this situation? And it was shocking the stuff that would come up from that question, uh, how it was all my fault, how I messed everything up, how, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do that? I'm so dumb. I'm this, I'm that. It was, it was shocking and revealing to see the things that I was just unknowingly uh, spewing off at myself. So that, that was a huge step was identifying the critical parent. And then for me, outreach calls and meetings were helpful because it felt like loving parenting was like something I was starting from scratch. And that's like a, that's like a creative process. And so it helps for me to like brainstorm and uh, get examples from other people. Cause it's like, I'm like launching a new uh, thing here. You know, I'm launching a new project uh, called loving parenting and I don't have a lot of references or a lot of experience with, I have experience with critical parenting. So inviting my fellows into that process and hearing how they're doing it and hearing how they're addressing their critical parent in the ways that they're talking to themselves, or even on a phone call saying, hey, this is the way I'm talking to myself. I don't know other ways to talk about myself and literally brainstorming some other options and seeing seeing if any of those uh, rang true or, or sounded helpful. Um, that was really important. Um, out of that, out of phone calls and talking about loving parenting with others, I, I landed on doing a mirror work exercise with a fellow uh, where we would do these calls with each other. Uh, we do five minutes of mirror work uh, before the call, which uh, the mirror work we were doing was 
like telling ourselves loving things about ourselves and letting the more wounded vulnerable parts respond uh and and journaling it there there's an exercise i think it's on page 444 of the big red book let me change yeah page 444 of the big red book has a couple mirror work exercises and one of them has this like um gazing at yourself and then and then giving yourself affirmations well this developed into a practice between me and a fellow where during the gazing part we'd let the inner child speak and then respond as the loving parent and then I, and then I, we we'd get on the phone after and we'd both share you know what the inner child said and how we responded and we were going to do it for two weeks and we ended up doing it for nine months um and that that was that was something else that that was like an unexpected gift um he proposed he proposed trying that out for two weeks and after two weeks we were like do you want to do a month and then after a month we were like well i can i can keep going if you want to um eventually you know we got to a place where where it was like i think it's time to put it down but but it's still something i return to and and having access to letting the wounded part say what he's afraid of and then comforting and engaging i i wouldn't say i tried to fix him uh but i did listen and and the mirror work exercise allowed me to see what he was going through and i think that really increased my empathy and then being able to talk about it with a fellow i feel like was an important aspect as well uh, that it, it wasn't just 30 minutes Patrick. thank you renee um it wasn't just me uh doing it myself and that benefited both of us you know I, it, ben it benefited me to hear what he was processing through and what his inner child was saying and the things that his inner child was afraid of and the way he was comforting his inner child that benefited me and vice versa and so it kind of become this this it became this creative process of, of designing my inner loving parent um what i'm finding these days is that you know as as my life opens up and aca gives me more or I, I should say participating in my aca practice gives me more creative options in life like i i have more desire to take risks and try stuff and do things i've been thinking about or invite people into relationship uh it, you know i start to break out of my shell a little bit and as i do i really need loving parenting <laughs> and and aca practice because as i break out of my shell i start to take risks and it's like oh i'm scared again my inner child's scared he's like no don't do that don't take that risk and so uh it's i'm so thankful to have uh people to call people to work with meetings to attend um and and a sense of i'll be with you and um one of the main fears that comes up for my inner child is that I'm going to abandon him. Um, then I'm going to leave him. And so the, these practices kind of help ground me in the fact that I, I'm not leaving. Um, I'm, I'm committed. I'm committed to being with you, Patrick. I'm, I'm committed to walking through this with you. Um, yeah, which is a big gift. Uh, I'm going to switch to talking about uh, dating from here um, because it's something that's live for me and it's something that's that's been interesting as an ACA. Um, so 
in ACA and other fellowships, I kind of designed a way to um, start dating that felt felt safe for me. When I, when I first came into ACA, I wasn't doing any dating. Um, in other programs, we would call this uh, anorexia, love anorexia. Um, and so that was kind of the season or the swing that I was in coming into ACA. And one reason from an ACA context for that was that my inner child was terrified uh, that I was going to abandon him, that I was going to leave him, that I was going to make this other person um, more important. I was going to give kind of all that I'd worked for in terms of creating connection with self. I was going to give that away for, for some other person and that they would become the new parent. And while I was doing the mirror work exercises, so sometimes the inner child would even say, you know, is this person our new parent? Is she mom? Are you going to leave me? And that that was revealing, you know, of, of what's going on for me from an ACA context when I engage in the process of dating or even making friends, you know, interacting with others. What's going on? What does my inner child need to know? And one of the things I found out was he he needs to know that that he's my priority over and above uh, how any certain relationship goes, that, that I'm committed to him. Um, he needs to know that he doesn't need to get anything from this person and that friendships and dating relationships can be about mutual interest, mutual inspiration, um, curiosity, that it doesn't have to be about getting or securing or make, making someone this, this um, object of approval, object, object of authority. Um, as I've endeavored to start dating, besides just fear coming up, um, it's also brought up triggers from the past that go all the way back to childhood. Um, it, it brings up triggers from past relationships before recovery. Uh, but it also brings up triggers all the way back to the, my childhood home. And the reason it's important for me to stay in talking, trusting, and feeling with my fellows is because as I step out into creating new relationships, I need a place, another place to talk about that and, and debrief and talk about what's going on. And that, that kind of gives me an anchor or a grounding um, so, so that I can explore. And so that dating and making friends can be about exploring rather than securing. Um, the other important aspect about this for me is that I'm not gonna do it perfectly. Uh, I think, especially cause I was coming from like a, a love and relationship anorexia thing. And I, I would extend the, the isolation I was in and the love anorexia I was in also to friendships that, that I was isolating myself from friendships and preventing myself from being in friendships, uh, making excuses for reasons not to connect with someone that I wanted to connect with. That, that was a part of, of my dysfunction coming in too. So recovery relationships and being in the fellowship give me a safe place from which to explore. And, and then I can get to know people from a place of curiosity. Um, but yeah, back to the not perfect thing. Um, I definitely, I haven't done dating perfectly and I haven't done making friends perfectly. And in that, uh, my critical parent will want to get a hold of certain details. Um, he'll want to 
criticize me for not saying the right thing or not um, not thinking of something before it happened. You know, the, the hypervigilance of my childhood, not predicting the future. You should have known. You couldn't see that. And um, it's important for me to intercept those messages. And it's important for me to call someone if I need help intercepting those messages. Uh, because the truth is in relationships, uh, I'm going to need to be able to give myself room to stumble and, uh, to, if, if I need to make amends, make amends, um, to address and maintain, do maintenance on my relationship behaviors. And my experience so far has that has been that as I engage in deeper relationships, it's just leverage for my fears <laughs> to, to come up. And, um, and so I need a safe place to be able to process those. Um, these days, I'm, I still have a sponsor. I have a handful of people that I stay in touch with on a regular basis. I'm sponsoring one person and, um, and that's enough. That's enough. Um, my schedule is busier than it ever has been. I'm in a grad school program right now. And so it's it's been a huge transition. And uh, I noticed myself wanting to, to either be all in or all out of recovery. And instead I'm practicing finding this middle road of yes, I'm busier than I was before, but participating in recovery on any level is way better for me than uh, none. And just because I can't go to all of my favorite meetings or take all the phone calls I want to take or make all the phone calls I want to take, if I make one phone call and get to one meeting or or just any, any way possible of participating and connecting with my fellows who are also in a recovery process, my day goes better. Uh, I'm, I'm more prone to meet myself with love and compassion, human respect, rather than criticism um, and despair. Um, last night, some friends came in town that I'd never met in person before. I knew one from a from a uh, ACA meeting that I met in the UK, and I knew one from a ACA men's meeting that has people from all over the place. And uh, and I never met either of them in person, and they had never met each other in person either. And um, the person from the UK had flown into LAX. Uh, my friend picked them up and then they picked me up and we went and got dinner. And there was the three of us in 3D, people I'd only seen on Zoom and only know from recovery, um, sitting down and having some Thai food together. And it was the, the weirdest combination of, wow, I've never met you in person. And also like, this feels like home. And I know that we can talk about anything. We can we can cover any grounds. Um, if you guys want to talk about music and uh, Thai food and travel, we can talk about that. If you want to talk about family dysfunction and what happened in your childhood and how you're repeating some dysfunction and trying to learn your way out of it, we can talk about that. And oh, by the way, would you pass the curry? You know, it's like... It, the, the range that I have in my in my recovery relationships is is a gift that I, I just didn't know was out there before recovery. And I'm so thankful that I've tiptoed into recovery over the years and incrementally um, allowed myself to participate more in recovery because I just didn't know 
what was available to me prior. And uh, I'm thankful that I, I took that risk. In the solution, it says we risk coming out of isolation. And it certainly does feel like a risk and it's paid off. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.